Are you ready for God's word? Why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter four? Matthew chapter four. While you're turning, I want to welcome those who are doing church online or watching church online today. We welcome you. Can we welcome those watching church online, wherever you're watching from? We say a big God bless you. So glad you're joining us uh, today. Matthew chapter four. What's going on in Matthew chapter four? Well, Jesus is grown. He's about 30. Uh, he's been baptized um, by John the Baptist. And then after being baptized, the Bible says, and we see this in Luke 4, which kind of parallels or sits on top of, in a way, Matthew 4. We see uh, Luke 4 says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He actually goes into the Judean desert. Um, it's, it's kind of to the southwest, uh, I, I believe. Um, I'm sorry, no. Is that right? No, to the east. Yes, it's to the east of Jerusalem. <laughs> Let me think about it. To the east of Jerusalem, uh, the Jordan Desert, it's, it's, it's got a lot of treacherous hills and valleys and all types of, of things in it. In, in fact, in, in, it, it climbs and descends so much that it can even have three different climates at a time. Um, it's, it's a tremendous area. And so he has led, the Bible says, by the Holy Spirit into the desert. Does anyone else have a problem with that? Does that seem like maybe it doesn't fit with, with maybe currently some of our ideas about God and about the whole, like it should have, you know, he's led by the spirit in, into Tahiti or, or Hawaii, right? Or right? does that kind of, you see what I'm saying? Like he was led by the Holy Spirit into, into the desert. In the desert. Isn't that interesting that the Holy Spirit will actually lead us into tight places and steep places and even sometimes what could be called treacherous or difficult places? Because what God knows is that before he can do something through you, he has to do something in you. And most of the time, if we feel like the Holy Spirit is leading us, in fact, most of the time, if we feel like we get to a tight place, a dark place, a steep place, we assume it can't be God. Because of our Western theology, God would only lead us by still waters. Right? He would only lead us into green pastures. But the Son of God was actually led into a wilderness because it is in the wilderness that he would be tempted. In other words, God said, I've got to lead you into the wilderness so I can develop in you a character that would allow me to work through you. I have to develop in you a faith that would allow me to use you. I have to develop in you a trust that will allow me to do something extraordinary through your life. And if you keep running from the wilderness, you'll never get to step into your destiny. And so it says Jesus, Luke 4 says Jesus was led into the wilderness. But then I like this, and we miss this sometimes. It says, after, after he's tempted, it says, and then he returned in the power of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. Then he returned in the power of the Spirit. Those aren't the same. And I think sometimes in church today, my, my concern and really what we're going to talk about today 
is, is that we talk a lot about being led by the Spirit. Oh, I want to be led. Pastor, just led. I want the Spirit to lead me. You know, we say, lead me, you know, where my trust is without borders. You know, call me out on the waters, you know. Um, uh, you know, lead me. And, and that's okay. That's a part of it. That we're led by the Spirit. But there's another part where we go in the power of the Spirit. And, and in our lives, there, there's, there's definitely our lives should be led by the Holy Spirit. But there is a calling and a purpose and a plan that God has for us that our lives would also exemplify the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was led of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, then he comes out of the Holy Spirit, and he says he returned in the power. And one of the reasons we let God lead us through the tight places and the tough places is because it develops in us what is necessary for him to then use us in the power of the Spirit. Are you with me? And so, so that's the context that we pick up in Matthew 4 with. You got to understand, he was led by and then returned in the power of the Spirit. That, that part of our relationship with God is he leads us by the Spirit, but part of what he's called us to is to live by and through and in the power to exemplify the power, to exude the power, to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what he's called you to. It's what he's called me to. Are, are you with me? And so, so it, there's the context for Matthew 4, verse 17, when it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. So this is where Jesus starts his ministry. Starts his ministry, and it says, from that time, he began, began to preach... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said, come follow me, and I'll send you out to fish for people. I love how Jesus says, you know what? You, you don't need special abilities. I'll just take what you have and use it for my glory. And so many times we disqualify ourselves from being used by God because we say, well, I don't have any special abilities. I don't have any special training. I haven't been to seminary or I haven't read a book or whatever the case may be. And Jesus said, you know what? Whatever you can do, I can use it. Right? And so he said, you know what? You fish, I'll, I'll get you to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. At once they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets, and Jesus called, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Can I just say how simple it was to follow Jesus back then? Like, they didn't have to have a mission statement. They didn't have to have a doctrinal, right, um, a statement. They, they, they didn't have to sit down and say, no, wait a second, when you say follow me, what does, that, does that mean follow you all the time or does that mean follow you part of the time? Does that mean I give up some things or give up all things? Could we negotiate about how much I have to give up or how much I have to do? Or what does it, what do I have to do to follow you? Or what do I need to know to follow you? Or, you know, if, if, if I'm going to follow you, is that, is that like a, a full commitment, a partial commitment? Is it kind of a weekend thing or is it seven days a week? Is it, is it like an hour a day in the mornings or, or is it 24 seven? Like I just need to, I just kind of wondering. No, it says, and they left everything and followed him. If you're wondering what following Jesus looks like, you leave everything and you follow him. It is 100% commitment. 
It's giving up my plans, my desires, my dreams. It's, it's not that he doesn't use those things, but it's the surrender of it. It's not that I sell my house, but I'm surrendered to him to, to go and to follow and to learn and to let him lead, right? So anyways, just a thought. And then Jesus went throughout Galilee and here he is teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. I remember uh, I took a class from Oral Roberts University. And it was talking about the ministry of Jesus as a class. And they, we broke down the ministry of Jesus into basically these three activities, teaching, preaching, and healing. And we said that none was more important than the other. They, they all comprised the totality, really, of everything that he did. He was always teaching, preaching, and healing. That was the ministry that he had. And then we kind of ended that with, is that not the ministry he's called us into? to proclaim the gospel, to teach what we know about him, right? To be disciples means to be learners of him and disciple others means to teach them what you've learned of him. So is that not what we've been called to? To proclaim the gospel, to learn from him, to teach others to follow him, and then to go and heal. And that's where people are like, whoop, 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 red flag. But that's what Jesus did and that's what his disciples did. And so as he said, he went through Galilee, teaching their synagogues, preaching the gospel, healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed. And he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, that's 10 cities, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him followed him. Why do they follow him? I would submit to you preaching, teaching, healing. Those possessed of the enemy were delivered. Those who were, were, were physically broken were made whole. I would, I would present, I would submit that, that they followed him, not because he'd written a bestseller yet, um, not because of, of his Instagram story. But I think they followed him because he practiced what he preached. He preached power and he practiced power. That's what I call this message. The practice of power. Can we pray? Father, thank you so much for your word. Because God, it tells us who we are and how we are to live. And that's not a set of rules. God, sometimes how we are to live is in a greater expectation of what you can do through us. God, what you've called us to. That, that your opinion is actually higher. And your opinion of us is actually higher than maybe our opinion of ourselves. And what we're called to is greater than we understand. And it doesn't have to do with socioeconomic class. It doesn't have to do with race. It doesn't have to do with how we were raised. It has to do, God, with your plan and your story and the fact that you've created us and you've redeemed us and you've called us to something extraordinary. And so, God, I just pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would anoint this time and these words, God, that they would stick into our hearts. And if they have to, God, let them mess us up and frustrate us spin us around, shake us up, God, so that, so that we pursue you in a different way.
so that we see you in a different way. So we see ourselves in a different way. And so, God, we even maybe live in a different way. In Jesus' name, amen. This message of Jesus. So he's, he's led by the Spirit in the wilderness. He comes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he starts preaching this gospel. And, and then all these miracles are happening. So he's preaching a message. And he's getting all these amazing results. And to me, this is what I want to understand. So you may want to write these things down, but, but I, I, want to look at, I want to look at the message and the focus and the method. What was his message? What was the focus of it? And what was the method of it? Because it was successful, right? And I'm one of those that if you got something that's successful, I think we should study that, right? Like it's hard to call people into failure, but you can call people into success, right? People don't, people don't want to join failure, but they want to join success. So so what he was doing successful, number one, it was the message. And his message wasn't that heaven was far, it was that heaven was near. And I think we fundamentally have, have to, have to get, get the difference in, in maybe what we call the typical gospel message and what Jesus was actually preaching. Because what, what we hear a lot of times proclaimed as the gospel is that Jesus came and he died for our sin, so now we can pray a prayer and when we die, we can live in heaven. And while that's not necessarily wrong, it's not complete. In fact, it wasn't even a message Jesus ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount didn't end with bow your heads, close your eyes, raise your hand if you want a relationship with me. And when you die, you know, Jesus never looked at someone and said, if you, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? And people wonder why Christians are weird. Because we walk up to strangers, if you were to die right now, like, who, who are you, man? Like, nowadays, that could be a terroristic threat, I think. You know, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> but Jesus didn't preach that. His message was, and we see it here in, in verse 17, his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, repent, we think, means change your behavior, but that's not it at all. It means change your mind. And so Jesus is saying, we got to think differently. And he's saying, because there's something now here that wasn't here before, and we would call that the kingdom of God. And so what, what, what earth was designed for is for, to, to be a replication or a shadow or resemblance of, of, of God's kingdom. And it was a place for God to dwell with people under his sovereign rule and power. That's, that's why God made earth, if you've ever wondered, and why God made, made, made people. And so, um, and so, but then people mess that up, right? Adam messes that up. And there is this separation between heaven and earth, right? And if you're sitting here thinking, this is crazy, I've never heard this. If you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, you prayed for this. You were just maybe so caught up in the tradition of the Lord's Prayer, you didn't pay attention maybe to what you were saying because you said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on that's what God's heartbeat has been since the beginning. His kingdom come on earth, dwelling with his people, right? And, and, and so there was this separation between heaven and earth, right? And, and so, so this is the story of the Bible, is how God is bringing all of this back to what his original plan was all along. He hasn't, he hasn't changed his plan. He hasn't changed his method. And so Jesus' message is there's a kingdom here. There's a power here. There's a dominion here. There's a rule here. 
that wasn't here previously. It's here now because I'm here now. I'm a son of God, anointed by the Spirit of God. The kingdom is in the Spirit. The kingdom of God is not righteous. I'm sorry, the kingdom of God is not what you eat, but it's righteous, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Where's the kingdom? In the Holy Spirit. And some of you are getting, by the way, you're getting better Bible college than if you went to Bible college right now, if you can understand this, because they don't teach this in Bible college. I, I didn't learn this at Bible school. They never taught me about the kingdom of God, which Jesus talks about 186 times in the Gospels. More than anything else, he talks about. So he talks about this kingdom because Jesus is trying to get us to understand there's a dominion here, there's a rule, there's a power that's here. Right? And so when we're talking about the kingdom of God, you could write these three, three things down to help you understand. Number one, it's about the dwelling of God, that God's plan has always been to dwell with people. What was the Garden of Eden except a place for God to dwell with man? You know, earth was a place for God to dwell with man. That was his original plan, right? What was the tabernacle? God's dwelling among Israel, temple, God's dwelling among Israel. What was Jesus? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God dwelling with people. How does this whole thing end? Revelation 7 says there's a, a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21 says, John said, I looked, saw a new Jerusalem coming down. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So, so what's God wanted all along? He's wanted to dwell with us. That's why earth was created. That's why he will redeem it and renew it, right? And so there's the dwelling. Then there's the dominion. The, the, the Bible says we were in the kingdom of darkness because of the fall. But when we come to faith in Christ, we are transferred, this is Colossians chapter one, we are transferred into the dominion or the kingdom of his dear son under the rule, under the power. That, that salvation is what frees us from the power of sin and death and transfers into his kingdom or his power and places under his lordship, his rule. This is why you want Jesus to be your Lord. Because you want to be under his authority. You want to be under his power. You want to be under his dominion, right? And, and not only are we transferred into it, but then we're called to administrate it which is what ministry actually is, to administrate. It's why you have a, a minister of defense. Are they praying for people? Well, they, maybe they should, but honestly, they're administrating defense, right? And so ministry, administration. And so, so this is what he's called us into. In fact, this is his plan you see in, in Genesis where he said, Adam, I want you to subdue and take dominion over the earth. That this is the sovereign call of man. That this was God's plan for us. It wasn't, it wasn't for us to die and, and go be with him in a mystical floaty place where we wear togas and sit on clouds and sing. Not his plan. His plan was that, that we rule and reign with him over a planet, that we dwell together. And so he's invited us into his dominion. In fact, then the great commission, Jesus says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely receive, freely give, right? Go and make disciples of every nation. So what are they telling us to do? What are they telling us? What's Jesus trying to tell us to do? Go and take dominion to bring order out of chaos and to infuse darkness with light to bring hope to hopelessness. That, that we are charged by God to, to extend his rule as citizens, as ambassadors, as sons and daughters. This is what your Bible tells us we're created for. This is what the Bible says that you're created for. 
to be a son, a joint heir, a, a co-laborer with God in the administration of his kingdom over a planet. To, to, to exercise dominion. That you are called to do that. And then there's the dynasty that we are called into to rule and to reign is nothing more than the dynasty of Christ where he is the Lord of all and he rules over all and we are seated with him and we rule and reign with him forever, the Bible says. And so we are called as sons, not as slaves. We are called as sons to enter in, to dwell with God, to have dominion and to rule with Jesus, not just until we die, to rule with Jesus for all eternity. And when you understand this, what the world has to offer becomes less. A one-night stand doesn't seem as exciting next to ruling and reigning over a universe for all eternity. Like if we really have, if we're really fixed on eternity, then, 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 then a lot of the things the world offers us seem very small all of a sudden. Like we're worried about who's swapping where on tender and God's wanting us to rule and reign over a universe. Are you with me? And so, so he has called us and so Jesus comes and his message is the kingdom is here. What does that mean? Well, it's here and it's there. It's now and it's not yet. But how can that be? It says essentially that Jesus, heaven, the king, the ruler of the universe, the kingdom of God initiated a redemptive action when Jesus came back to earth. And it was that this is where it begins. The redemption and the renewal of creation begins here. And so Jesus came and he said, you know what? The kingdom is here. And now you can be transferred into dominion. You can have victory over sin and you can have victory over over death right and then he gathers his people as citizens and said now you are my my people you're the citizens of heaven you're ambassadors to extend this dominion over the planet until i come again and when i come again i will completely redeem all of mankind those who are mine and i will completely renew all of creation so we can dwell together and rule together and reign together That's, that's what the Bible says. And so Jesus' message wasn't, wasn't, pray the prayer, and when you die, you can go to heaven. Have you ever thought about that? Like, what do I have to look forward to? Dying. Well, pass the Kool-Aid out then, man, because this earth is hard. Oh my God, Ethel, he said it. Yes, I did. I'm just saying that that message has no hope. It has no power. It doesn't offer me anything. It just says, hey, hey, pray a prayer and someday you can die. It gives me no purpose. It calls me in, into nothing greater than what I see. It, it says nothing about me other than what I know. But this other message that there's a kingdom and I'm an ambassador and I'm a son calls me into identity, calls me into purpose, calls me into power. So his message was that heaven was near, not far. Here's the second thing. His focus wasn't a place, it was people. His focus wasn't a place, it was people. Matthew 4 and 18 says, in verse 4 and 19 says, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And then, and then, and then we read where people followed him. In other words, Jesus came to gather a people. He wasn't focused on a place as much as he was gathering 
gathering of people. God's always been about a people. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus and his band of merry men, we call the disciples, are having a conversation. They're near Caesarea Philippi, the, the, the region with two first names, Caesar and Philip, Caesarea Philippi which is essentially to say they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. And Jesus starts up this conversation and says, hey, who do people say that I am? And then he gets some whacked out answers. Like some people think you're John the Baptist. And he's like, John baptized me. Like we, John and I have been seen together. I mean, it's not like Bruce Wayne and Batman who have never been seen together, right? I mean, we have been seen together. How, you know, and then, then some say Elijah the prophet, you know. And then he asks he asked the all-important question, who do you say that I am? Because however you answer that question determines who he can be to you. Because if you say he's just a good teacher, all you can do is learn some stuff from him. And if you say he was just a good person, all you can do is just admire some things about him. That, that Jesus will actually let you set, set the, the parameters of your relationship with him. And if you want him to be distant and you want him to, to stay back and you don't want him to get all up in your business, then you're like, that's fine. But who do you say that? I am? However you answer that question determines who I will be to you. And, Jesus, and, and then Peter comes up with the right answer, like the best answer. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. In other words, you're the Lord of the universe. You are God's Messiah. You are the one that, that, that comes to redeem, that comes to renew creation. Like he, he got the right answer. You're the king. Not talking about Elvis. You're the king. Right? And Jesus says, wow, flesh and blood hasn't, hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then Jesus says this in verse 18. He said, I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, let's talk about the word church, because the Bible says church, and it says, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Let me just say this about that. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. The gates of hell. In other words, I think sometimes we miss, miss this in, in church, that, that the church is the offense and hell is on defense. And I think sometimes we miss that because we think we're on defense and we're just trying to keep hell out when truly, no, what he's saying is hell has established some strongholds, but it has no authority to keep them. Hell can't prevail against the church. Hell is on the defensive. They're the ones shaking in their boots, right? We're the ones that are on the defensive. But he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Let's talk about it. What was the rock? Well, the rock wasn't Peter. The rock was a revelation or an understanding that he was the king, that he was the Messiah, that he was the anointed one of God, right? That, that revelation, when you, when you come to that, then he starts building. And what is he building? He's building a church and, and kind of in a travesty of, 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 of interpretation and translation, um, the English Bible uses the word church here and it shouldn't be church. The word in the Greek is actually, actually ekklesia. Uh, it would be gathering, assembly, or congregation. In other words, it would be a people. And we associate church with a building, right? The word's ecclesia. And, 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 and we get our English Bible from the Greek text, and there's a lot of Greek text, and so our English Bible is very, it's, it's very accurate. But the problem was when they came to this word, by the time they get here, church has become about sacred places and sacred texts and sacred rituals. Like, like the Jesus movement had kind of stopped and it had become an organized religion under the government of Rome and it's kind of gone through a lot of translation, tra transition and now this Jesus movement isn't a movement anymore. It's sacred places and sacred texts and sacred rituals. And because of that, when they translated the Bible, even though they're using the Greek text, they got to this word ekklesia, which is gathering, 
or assembly or congregation. And, and to them, their minds thought, oh, but, but he's really talking about the church, which they equated with a place. So they used a German word, which means house of the Lord, church. Because what Jesus actually said, on this revelation that I'm the king of the universe, that I'm the Messiah, I will gather people. I will assemble a people. I will bring together a congregation of people, my people. And in that moment, Jesus isn't predicting a building. He's predicting you. He's predicting me. He's predicting Pathway Church, right? He's predicting his followers, his people. And in that moment, he's not thinking about buildings. He's thinking about us. And he's saying, this is what I'm trying to build. This is where the hope is. These are the people who carry the message. These are the people who bear the image. These are the people who raise up the standard, who carry the cause, who are empowered by my presence. It's these people. These are the people that I'm thinking about. These are the people that, that I'm predicting. I'm not talking about a sacred place. I'm not talking about sacred rituals. But I am talking about a sacred people who are temples in and of themselves. Temples full of the Holy Spirit. And church, to me, I know on a day when we're talking about breaking land or breaking ground, I don't know if you can break land, <laughs> but breaking ground and, and we're talking about building a building. Can I just say from my heart, we can never be more focused on the building than we are on the people. We can never do it. Buildings, are, they're not holy. They're just concrete and steel and iron and whatever else would, right? But they're not sacred. The people are sacred. And, and it is true we build buildings because we need a place to gather, to assemble. We need a place to congregate. We need a place to grow and to learn and to be changed in the presence of God. We need a place for children to be taught the, the word of God. We need a place to proclaim the gospel to our teenagers. We, we need that. But, but, but that's not where our focus is. Our focus is always found people find people, right? And, and, and a building is not going to find people. It's just going to sit where you put it. It's the laziest Christian you'll ever meet. It's just going to sit there on its blessed assurance, on its concrete foundation, holding up its steel beams. It's not going to move around. It's not going to go into all the world. It's not going to preach the gospel. It's going to sit there. So it's not sacred. But if you have a group of people who believe people are sacred and people are called and people are chosen and, and people are, are the focus, then they'll go out and they'll gather and found people will find people and they'll bring them to God's house where they can be in his presence and receive his grace and learn his ways. And then why do we assemble but to scatter? Why do we gather but to disperse and go out and preach the gospel? Are you with me? Like his, his focus was, was the people. And here's the last thing, last thing. His method wasn't practicing rituals, but it was the practice of power. Not the practice of rituals, but the practice of power. Not the practice of rituals, but the practice of power. I thought about that in comparing it to, to the modern church to a lot of churches I've been in, even to our own church. And say, man, if this ever turns into just practicing 
doing the, the church stuff and there's not power, then we missed it. Because this was the problem Jesus had with the religious people of the day. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't the best at practicing their rituals. He kept the law, but they had a lot of rituals, right? Like they got onto him because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. First of all, if, if you're a follower of God and you watch someone be healed, are you telling me that your first response, this is Sabbath, you can't, can't do miracles on the Sabbath. That's what you got? A man, withered hand straightened out. And what you got is a shame on you for healing on the Sabbath? And you don't think there's a problem with this system? It's kind of like me. Some of the marking we've done has not been the most popular. Some of you know, our own newspaper refused to air one of our ads. They refused to print it. Can you just print something like all the other churches, they said. I said, if I were trying to reach church people, I could. I'm not trying to reach church people. Because I think if we're going to reach people that no one else is reaching, we may have to do something no one else is doing. I'm sorry. I'm not doing this for church people or religious people or to fit in the box of religion. I'm not practicing rituals. I want to live a life of power. So this is what I see from Jesus. It says that he went about healing every disease and sickness among the people. It, it, his message was that not, not of confirmation, but of liberation. It wasn't, hey, you can conform to us. It's like, no, there is a power that can transform you. See, see we, we look at the gospel and think it's a powerful message. And what I'd say, no, 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 no. <laughs> the message is the power. The message is that there is a power here. There is a king that redeems. There is a cross that frees. There is a blood that saves. There is an empty tomb that, that has released the power of God into our lives. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can actually raise us from the dead and cause us to live lives of power. Are you with? It's, it's not, not, not tradition, not ritual. No, 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 no. There's power here. The message isn't that you can act better. The message is there's a power that frees you. The message is the power. The power is the message. And Jesus said, there's a power here. There's a presence here. There's a kingdom here. And this kingdom has dominion. It has dominion over sickness and dominion over disease and dominion over depression. Wouldn't it be great if people came to a church, and, and I love counselors and I have one. Wouldn't it be great if people came to a church with depression and the power of God delivered them instead of us sending them to another counselor? And I'm all for counselors. Hear me out. I love counselors, but I'm just saying there's power. There's supposed to be power. And his message was there's a power here. There's a dominion here. And if you step into this dominion, it will order your chaos. There was never supposed to be proclamation without power. Never supposed to be a message without a miracle. 
Never supposed to be a declaration without deliverance. And I feel like we have, just like Jesus was led by the Spirit and then came back in the power of the Spirit, we've like separated the gospel from the power. And now it's a good news and it's a good message. But the good news was that it had power. That's what made it good. It's not good news that you can die. But it is good news that you can be resurrected and healed and restored and delivered and said, that's good news. There's power in the message. A.W. Tozer, A.W. Tozer said, said this one time. He said, if God were to take the Holy Spirit from us today, in many cases, it would take churches three months to figure it out. Because, because we know the practice of the traditions and the practice of the rituals and, and we know how to sing and we know how to put our hands up and sometimes we even know how to shout and in some churches, they know how to wave streamers and they know how to do tambourines and all of that is something that means something. And someone said, well, how, you know, this is how we show God's presence is with the waving of these things. And I wasn't trying to be hateful. I'm not trying to be mean. I think those things are great in private worship. I don't think hitting somebody with a streamer on the weekend is a good thing. I think there's a place for it. If that's, that's your jam, then get along with Jesus and wave your streamer until you just have a fit, man. Just go for it. But I said, you know what? I'd like to see a church where the dead are raised, the lepers are cleansed. Right? Where families are restored, where depression is broken, where fear is cast out of people. And let's let that be the mark of the presence of God, not our tambourine. Nothing against the tambourine. We have some on the percussion team. But I'm just saying, are you with me? Yeah. <laughs> we were never supposed to live a life where, where we didn't anticipate, expect, believe for, hunger and crave for, the power of God to work through us to touch other people, to transform, to change, to heal, to set free, to deliver. This is what we've been called to. This is why the Holy Spirit was given to the church. It's why the Holy Spirit came, is, is to anoint us. In fact, you, you could write this down, three sub points really quick. Number one, when we're talking about this, this power and this message and the Holy Spirit, and not being unplugged from Him, but, and not just being led by Him, but by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. You write this down. Number one, God always anoints who He appoints. We don't talk about it a lot, but there's an anointing of the Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit, and then it says He came out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are all different things. Those are different things. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus said this, the spirit of the Lord is, look at this, look at this, upon me. Not in me, but was he in him? Yes, but he's showing us something different. He's saying, no, he's on me. Do you know the Holy Spirit can be in you and on you? He is in you to lead you. He is on you to use you. Are you with me? He's in you to lead you, but he's on you, the power of the spirit to use you. That's why Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. What does that mean? He is smeared on me. Like, we just need to get God smeared on us. Right? He has anointed me, what? To, to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
the recovery of sight to the blind, to set it free those who are oppressed, to proclaim that this is a year of God's favor. In other words, Jesus said, he's in me for me, but he's on me for you. That's what he's saying. And he said, well, that was good for him. But look at what Paul said to, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians one twenty one. It says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. And now you find out you're anointed. Just like Jesus was the anointed one, we are in him and we are anointed by him and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit who is a deposit of the guarantee of our inheritance, right? But, but here's what he's saying, you're anointed. Like maybe you didn't know this coming in here today, but God not only called you and purposed you, but he wants to give you the power. He wants to give you the power to do it. He wants you to expect the supernatural enablement of God. In other words, what it would be if we face tomorrow, not in our own strength, but in his. Just like God's word says, not by our might or not by our strength, but by his spirit. What if we depended and expected God to anoint us and to use us? He anoints who he appoints. Here's the second thing you might want to write down. The, the world doesn't need more doctrine. It needs more demonstration. We, we got doctrine out our ears. There's a lot of places doctrine can come out. But it's coming out of our ears right now. We got doctrine coming out of our ears. I don't think the world needs more doctrine. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, I didn't come with excellency of speech, but I came with the demonstration of God's power. I didn't come with excellency of speech, but here's what Paul said. I came with the demonstration. I, I figure if a church could so press in and so place a demand and be so anointed by God, I, I figure that we could demonstrate God's power in a way that would relieve us from having to explain our doctrine on Facebook anymore. Because you can get on Facebook and get caught up in all these doctrinal, you can get in YouTube, you get caught up on all these doctrinal discussions about does God, will God, who is God, who are we, what's going, my thing is, well, if we just walk in power and demonstrate the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have to spend a lot of time explaining what doctrine is. Jesus never, never taught a class that we know on, on the doctrine of healing. He just healed all who were sick and diseased. I don't know if he ever did a workshop on how to deal with the demonic, but he cast out demons with a word and set free those who were oppressed by the enemy. I don't think he ever wrote a book on overcoming depression, but he said, I'm going to preach the gospel to those who have a spirit of heaviness, to those who are oppressed of the enemy, that they can walk in liberty and freedom. He just Live the demonstration of the kingdom that he said was present, that was here, and that was now. And what if we as a church just said, maybe we should try that? Like it's a big jump, I get it, but what if we just, my thought is, what if we got a little closer to it tomorrow than we are today? Like next steps, right? 
Like, God, we're just going to keep pressing it. Just keep believing, keep anticipating, keep expecting. We're going to keep praying. When we run into somebody that's sick, we're not going to tell them, hey, I'll pray for you. We'll stop right there and pray for them, right? And expect God to do something right there in the supermarket or, or, or in the parking lot. Are you with me? What if we just place that expectation? Here's the last thing I would say is you, you, you can't give out what you haven't been filled up with. You can't give out what you haven't been filled up with. A lot of people, if you say, what was Jesus' last command to his disciples? They would say, go into all the world. But truthfully, his last command to the disciples wasn't go. It was wait. Now, how many times have you heard a sermon on wait? Because if you're like me and, and, and you're a pastor, we're always trying to get people to go, 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 go. Got to get off that blessed assurance. Got to do something. But Jesus Last words really was wait. He said, go to Jerusalem and wait until you're endued with power from on high. Then go. Acts 1.8 says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, look at this, comes upon. In, no, 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 they already say Holy Spirit. On. Why do we need the Holy Spirit on? Because that's how you go. Because you can't give out what you haven't been filled up with. And we're not supposed to, like Paul was saying, we're not supposed to go and be filled up with intellectual ideas or humanistic wisdom or, or, or good opinions or even good doctrines. We're supposed to be filled up with the power of the Holy Spirit and anointed by God. So when we go, we carry power with us. That this message wasn't about practicing rituals. It was about the practice of power. That he healed all who were sick. That, that he raised the dead. That he cast demons out with a word. It was a gospel of power. You can't separate the message from the power. If you get the message right, it has power. If you get the power right, it, it proclaims the message. You can't separate the message and the power. It's not intellectual ideas. It's not theology. It is good news that there is a kingdom that has dominion over the chaos of this world that is here and God has called us into it and anointed us by his spirit to go and administrate it in the world around us. That is the gospel that we have been called and purposed by God not to die and go to heaven. We've been called and purposed by God to be a anointed to proclaim his message and to demonstrate his power and to bring light into darkness to make earth salty again so it has a little flavor to it right and to bring order where there's chaos we have been anointed and appointed not to ask God to do it not to ask the preacher to come help but for us to go heal the sick cleanse the leper raise the dead cast out demons freely we've received freely that's what you've been called into That's what we've been called into. That's, that's the target. That's the target. That's what we're gunning for. That's what we long for. And, and when it comes to it, can I say supply is never the problem? Demand is the problem? God, God is infinite in supply. If we would, 
if we would just be unwavering in demand? Jesus said this, if, if, you, if you being good fathers, if your children ask for a fish, would you give them a snake? If they ask for an egg, would you give them a scorpion? He said, of course not. So if you're sinful fathers and you still give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more? Will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more? Will he give the Holy Spirit? Can I just tell you? God wants to anoint you. He wants to fill you up. And he wants to send you out and use you. You're not waiting on him. There's plenty of supply. He just wants you to put a demand on it. To ask him. Fill me up. Pour me out. Fill me up. Pour me out. Fill me up. Pour me out. Anoint me. Anoint me. Anoint me and use 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 me. That's all he's wanting. He'll gladly do it. Amen. Can you give Jesus one more hand? I feel like he is so good. (laughs) Why don't you stand? Stand with me.